Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles. And I'm Francis Dernley. And this is a special episode of Ukraine, the latest. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody want to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Journalist Simon Schuster has reported on and from Ukraine for many years for Time magazine, the Kiev Post, and many other distinguished publications. Most recently, he spent a year following and interviewing key figures in Kiev's presidential office, including the president himself, Volodymyr Zelensky. In his new book, The Showman, Simon relates how he saw firsthand Zelensky conduct this war, from the bunker to the front lines, and how Zelensky used his experiences as a communicator to articulate and inspire the country's defiance. In the book and our interview, Simon examines how the brutal invasion and Ukrainian resistance changed Zelensky creating a tougher, more serious man than Simon had first met in 2019 on the eve of his astonishing presidential victory. It was a privilege to be able to speak to Simon, a long-time listener of the podcast, and understand more about his time with Zelensky during this time of war. This is not one to miss. Here's our conversation. Well, Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure to speak to you about this. Just to start off, for, for those listeners who don't necessarily know who you are, could you just give a short account of your background and explain why you're interested in Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky? I mean, I've been covering Ukraine and Russia for basically my entire career as a journalist. It's now 17 years or so. President Zelensky uh, is not the first president of Ukraine I've, I've uh, profiled and interviewed and spent a lot of time with. He's the third. So I, I interviewed President Yanukovych in 2012. Um, I followed around President uh, Poroshenko and his, during his presidency quite a bit. So it was quite natural for me when Volodymyr Zelensky announced his candidacy and began climbing in the polls to pay some attention and tell my editors, hey, there's this comedian who is gaining ground. We should pay attention to his campaign because he might just win. So that was the origin of my interest. They said, okay, yeah, go for it. Take a look. But I cover Ukraine intensively, yes, for many, many years. That is what I do. <laughs> Tell us about the first time you met Volodymyr Zelensky. What was the situation? What was the scene in which you met him? And what did you make of him? Yeah, I met him backstage, the premiere of his comedy variety show in March of 2019. That performance, I would say, doubled as a campaign rally. His comedy was often indistinguishable from his electioneering. 
And it was a show in, in the biggest concert venue in Kiev, the Palace of Ukraine. And I got in touch with his team and they brought me backstage and I, I saw President and candidate Zelensky for the first time backstage as he was pacing around and dealing with his stage fright, which often affects him before a performance. As I learned from his allies at the time, his friends, there had been a bomb threat at the theater that afternoon. Someone called in an anonymous caller and said, there are explosives in the theater. They're going to blow up during the performance. So I think that also contributed to Zelensky's nerves that night. He and the management of the venue decided to go on with the show after police had come in and, and looked around and did not find any explosives. So they said, okay, it's probably a hoax. Let's just continue with the show. And that was quite a, a fraught and interesting atmosphere to meet him and to observe the show and really get to know a lot of his, his friends and fellow comedians, some of whom then followed him into power when he won the election. So my first interview was with him was that night uh, after he finished his performance. We went back to his dressing room and talked about his plans for the presidency. I was quite curious. After spending some time with his friends and, and his comedy troupe that night, I was like, man, this is really fun. You got all your friends around you. You got all these you know, go-go dancers. And, you know, it's like a, just a party atmosphere wherever you go. You're surrounded by people who love you and adore you. Your fans absolutely love you. And none of that is going to follow you into the presidency. I told him, why do you want to do this? You're going to have to travel around to Brussels and London and, and Washington and deal with all these boring politicians and you know, sit through all these summits of world leaders. It doesn't sound fun. And as I describe in the book, he didn't have many very well thought out answers. He didn't have a clear electoral platform. So to answer your question more directly, he struck me as kind of a, a, a naive figure, very optimistic, very confident in his abilities, as he put it, to figure it out, meaning figure out how to be president. But he was, in, in my opinion, then at the time, as I wrote, quite unprepared for what was coming. You mentioned you've also inter interviewed Yanukovych and Poroshenko. Mm -hmm. yeah. How was Zelensky different in, in your view? And when you met him, did you think he could win? Yes, I thought he could win. I mean, the, it wasn't so much my opinion. It was the opinion polls by the time I arrived in, in Kiev to cover the campaign. He was well ahead. How is he different? Oh, man, that's a big one. He's very different from Poroshenko and Yanukovych. They're all very different characters. I, I think the contrast that I he described most clearly in the book, the book goes into the feud uh, between Poroshenko and Zelensky uh, in some detail. And, and I, I, I try to paint both of them in, in three dimensions. I think one thing that I describe in the book is the difficulty that Poroshenko had in keeping the world's attention. He's a good public speaker. He's a good politician. He's fluent in English. And he was able to make the case for Ukraine on the world's political stages fairly effectively. But he lacked the charisma and the ability, the showmanship of Zelensky. And I think that hurt him and it hurt Ukraine's effort in, in the war leading up to the full-scale invasion when President Poroshenko was in office. His deficit of charisma, I think, stands in stark contrast to Zelensky, who, as we saw, to some extent, in, in the early years of his presidency, but certainly after the full-scale invasion, his ability to grab and hold the attention of the world was incredible and really uh, one of the biggest assets Ukraine had in fighting this war. And it was in stark contrast, as I try to describe in the book, to, to his predecessor, Poroshenko. Listeners will be familiar with his wife, Olena Zelenska. They may not know about his children, about his wider family. What can you tell us to maybe fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge about Zelensky's personal and, and family life? What should we know? Thank you. Yeah. So the, the book is a wartime biography. So I'd say much more than half of it focuses on the war. 
and Zelensky's experience in response to the war. But it does go into to a lot of detail about his family history, his personal history, his career in comedy. So there are many pages devoted to, for example, his grandfather, who was a World War II veteran. And his grandfather's stories of World War II, I think, were quite formative for Zelensky's understanding of history, of the relations between Ukraine and Russia, and just generally what a man should be. I think he was quite a role model, as was his father, maybe to a lesser degree. I think Zelensky idolizes his grandfather. His grandfather volunteered as a teenager to fight in World War II and became a commander of a mortar platoon. He lost three brothers in World War II. Three of his brothers were killed in combat. Both of his parents, Zelensky's great-grandparents, were killed. Uh, in, in what became known as the Holocaust by bullets that the Nazis perpetrated in Ukraine and other countries. So that was very formative. I think that was talked about around the kitchen table in, in Zelensky's home growing up. To a lesser extent, much less, they did mention, but in hushed tones, the atrocities committed by Joseph Stalin and, and the repressions of the Soviet authorities. These things were less prominent around their kitchen table, these issues, because they knew that they couldn't speak too openly about such things. These were dangerous topics, Stalin's atrocities. So many, many things, as Zelensky told me in one of our interviews about this, he learned about, for example, the Holodomor and really the extent of, of that genocide committed by Stalin and the Soviets against Ukraine in the 1930s. He learned about it in the 1990s after the Soviet Union collapsed. And as he put it, we got the internet, we started reading, and we began to learn. So just a couple of snippets there. I could go on about his early history, but that's a couple of examples of the kind of formative experiences that, that I described in the book. That's really useful. Thank you, Simon. As you said, the book is primarily a, an account of the war. So let's move to that. A lot of your time with Zelensky was spent in 11 Bankova Street, the sort of the official residence yeah. of the president. Could you give us a sense of what is it like to be inside there? What kind of building is it? What do you see when you walk in? British listeners will know roughly maybe what Downing Street looks like and American listeners will understand the White House. What should we know about 11 Bankova Street? Oh, where to begin? I spent a lot of time at Bankova Street before Zelensky took office. As I said, I interviewed two previous presidents there in those same rooms. They look like they're furnished from a rummage sale at the Palace of Versailles, out back of some European palace. They're heavy, kind of pompous furniture, a, a lot of mahogany, gold, tapestries, chandeliers, this kind of thing. And I think Zelensky's predecessors, certainly Yanukovych, appreciated that decor. Uh, Zelensky's team, when they came in, were like, oh my God, this place is terrible. <laughs> like, Let's get out of here. They had a lot of ideas of how to remodel it. It reminds you of a kind of traditional European palace of power. And they had ideas to move to a different building because they disliked it so much. It, it stank so much of the air, the musty air of past administrations that they really wanted to gut the place and, and eat or move. But they were not allowed to by, first of all, the bodyguards. They said, no, this place is designed for your security. It has a bunker that may come in handy one day. Zelensky and his team early in their administration were given a tour of the bunker underneath Bankova Street, as I describe in the book. And the recollection that Zelensky's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, shared with me was, we went down there and we were like, what is this musty old place? Like, why do we need this bunker? What are we living? Are, are we living in the Soviet Cold War past? What is this thing for? So they thought it was useless. But the security guards won the argument. The uh, bean counters won the argument because it would have been very expensive to uh, do a whole wholesale renovation, let alone move to a different building. So they had to live there and to work there, and it became their home. 
quite literally once the invasion started. There's so much we could say about the start of the full-scale invasion. I want to pick up on just one thing you write. I believe this is Zelensky recollecting this to you. So you write, Zelensky remembers giving himself a pep talk. They're watching, he told himself. You're a symbol. You need to act the way a head of state must act. And I, I wanted to ask you how much you think that motivated him and motivates him now, potentially, the, the knowledge that people look to him, that he's, to some extent, acting a role. He's performing how he thinks a wartime president should perform and whether that leads into some of the other points you make about his bravery that occasionally strays over into recklessness. Um, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, the way I think about that is, uh, honestly, anyone thrust into that position in which Zelensky found himself on February 24th, 2022, would have had to take on a new persona. There is no such thing as a, you know, off-the-shelf wartime leader. <laughs> I'm not familiar with anyone like that. So anyone thrust in, into the extraordinary circumstances of being under attack by a nuclear superpower that wants to kill you, kill your family, take over your entire country, you have to sort of think on your feet and take on a new persona. I think anyone, if you imagine yourself in that position, you'd be like, okay, what am I supposed to do right now? Who am I supposed to be? You know, and, and I, if I imagined myself in those circumstances, yeah, I would, I would think maybe to movies I had seen, books I had read, biographies I had read about Churchill, maybe other, other wartime leaders, and try to emulate them as best I could on the fly. I, I think Zelensky did that too. From the quote you read, he was quite forthright about that. He said, the world is watching, basically, and, and you are now a symbol of resistance, a symbol of the state, so you have to step into those shoes and be that. I argue in the book that his... Uh, experience, his skills as an actor, a showman, a TV producer for so many years gave him the uh, flexibility, the agility to step into that role much more quickly and much more fully than I think any other leader would. He had that ability to take on a new persona. Simon, thank you so much for your time. We could talk for hours on so many questions around Zelensky, but I want to start and stay on this theme, if I may, which is about Zelensky's leadership. You mentioned there that he's well aware and has been compared many times to Churchill and other historical figures. And we'll, we'll get to perhaps unpacking a little bit of that, which you do in the book in a moment. But just want to ask, you spent a lot of time in his company and we've spoken to other people who spent a lot of time in his company but perhaps you more than most. Do you feel that you are in the presence of what many would deem a great man of history? Or does that grandiosity dissipate when you're with somebody for so long and before they assume that sort of mantle and aura? I think to do my work properly, I, I couldn't be seduced by the aura of the great man. He, he is a, a great historical figure. I think he will be remembered for his courage for a long time. But I, I really, to, to write this book and to do my work as a reporter, I, I had to see the man behind, the, behind the, uh, the image he projected. So he is very impressive when you meet him in person. But what comes through, and I've heard this from other people who have met him as well, is an attentiveness. It's, a, it's an empathy. It's a willingness to listen. He doesn't grandstand when you talk to him in person. Much more often, he would generally begin our conversations like this. He would ask you, what do you think? What do you think about what's going on? What do you think we should do? I'll ask you about the news of the day. Sometimes he would do this interesting conversation I had with his uh, personal photographer. His name is Pasha. I got to know him pretty well. And sometimes Pasha would be photographing some meeting and, and Zelensky would call him over and be like, Pasha, what do you think about this? Give us your opinion. And he would do this kind of gut check. So I, I think that's an interesting dimension of his character. And it goes deep. It's his way of checking whether his instincts are deceiving him and whether his advisors are deceiving him so to get these outside perspectives. So, yeah, he, he comes across as, as quite 
just normal, a normal guy thrust into an absolutely extraordinary situation. His personality has evolved. The Zelensky I'm describing now is the most recent one. I, I would say that in the earlier in my acquaintance with him, I didn't have the impression of uh, a great historical figure. No, I, I didn't think he had it in him. But he has grown into the role. His assets, and you've just described some of them there, are well recorded. So I think actually in this interview, one of the most interesting things we can do is talk about some of his faults and a few critiques that can be made of Zelensky's decisions and certain leadership attributes. And so on that theme, naivety is quite a big one. I think you've already touched on it. And I was very struck by something you wrote about in the book, which is when you're talking to him one-on-one and he can't quite believe that you're going to write a book about the first year of the war and beyond. And this was only, I think, a few weeks into the war, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, that does speak to a a certain naivety, if that's perhaps a rather unkind word. Just can you unpack that a little bit more for me? I mean, do you think he was joking with you or do you think he really didn't believe that this conflict would last anywhere near as long as it has? No, he wasn't joking. He looked quite upset by my suggestion that it would take me about a year to write and publish the book. His response was quite you know, grim. He said, what, you think this war is still going, to be going on for a year? Yes, maybe that's naivete. I think there's, a, there's an element of that. You could call it other things, optimism, confidence. I think he believed, certainly at the time, this was, as you said, a few weeks into the invasion. He believed that it could still be uh, brought to an end in a negotiation with Putin, that there was a way out, that this wouldn't go on. For so long. And indeed, he and, and many of his advisors were promising Ukrainians in their public pronouncements some quick victory, a quick end to the war. This was their appeal to many Ukrainians to volunteer for the military, saying, join us, participate in our victory. It'll take famously or maybe infamously, uh, one of his advisors said two to three weeks and we'll be done. Others said a few months. So no, he wasn't kidding. He believed that it would end sooner. But yeah, he was forced to eventually to part with those illusions. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's so naive now, but he still has an abiding and very deep confidence in himself, in victory. This isn't an act. He really believes. And I'm not saying he's wrong to to believe in Ukraine's ultimate victory. But if you compare and contrast it with the the conversations I've had with some of the people around him, including commanders and his advisors, some of them lack that confidence. I wouldn't say most of them, but some of them don't believe quite as as fully in, in Ukraine's ultimate victory, meaning the restoration of all of Ukraine's occupied territories and so on. But Zelensky has that. If you want to call that naive, yeah, that's one way to put it. But I think it's just a fundamental confidence he has in himself uh, that, that has been a hallmark of his personality uh, going back, man, back to the very beginning of his career. That's fascinating. And just staying on this theme, critiques have been made by some that perhaps earlier in the war, he unified the world by having that very absolutist position and absolutist definition of victory, as you've just articulated. Do you think to a degree that he is now trapped in that? Do you think he does still have room for political manoeuvre? Or do you think that in a sense he has now no choice but to pursue that line. I mean, I I don't deny in any sense that he really believes that, but I'm wondering the degree to which he's actually a prisoner in his own articulation now that was not perhaps necessarily always predetermined to to be the definition of victory that Ukraine sought. No, I don't don't think he's trapped at all. He's he's far too clever and and far too agile uh, a, a leader. It has been hard for him. I've observed in recent months, the attempts of Zelensky's administration to to shift the narrative a little bit, to, to find a new story to tell. 
they constantly do this at meetings to shift the narrative. And I think they have been stuck with a certain narrative for a little bit too long of promising total victory, denying difficulties on the front line, castigating generals for declaring a stalemate and so on. So they've been stuck in a narrative that even some of Zelensky's advisors admit is getting difficult to maintain uh, or to marry with reality. I'm relieved you said that because a critique that we've discussed on the podcast recently, and I think I've made, is that Zelensky's in quite a difficult position at the moment in terms of how the world sees him, the media, the public. He's become... Again, it's an unfair term to use given the circumstances, but he's become quite predictable. People know what message he's going to put out and what he's going to say, how he's going to say it. That comes with impediments because people, after a sustained period of time, get used to what you're going to say. And they do, to a certain degree, unfortunately, switch off. You seem to think that it is possible with his adaptability and charisma to change tack and to adapt how can he do that? I'm interested if you think and have seen any evidence of how he might be able to adapt and, in a sense, win back the spotlight. Yeah, I, the last conversation I had with him was in October, and he said he had the feeling that a lot of the world, Europe, the United States, uh, people were acting like they were watching the rerun of the same show for the 10th time, and, and that was making them change the channel, just to reinforce the point you just made. There's a live discussion going on in the office of the president how to shift how to liven up the messaging to give a fresh momentum to his message and, and his persona in the international media. They can do it. There, there are a lot of ideas batted around. I, I don't presume to give them advice on this. They, they're much better at this stuff than I ever could be. But if, for example, they come to the conclusion, uh, and I'm not saying this is, this is appropriate, but if they were to come to, to the conclusion that promising total victory is not the best way forward, that they need to adjust the narrative, they would begin to talk in different terms to prepare the, the population of Ukraine for a different outcome in the war. It sounds quite vague. I'm sorry. I don't know how they would do that exactly. But honestly, reading between the lines of some of his statements in Davos, for example, just, just in recent days, I have the sense, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk to his advisors about this. This is too recent. But I have the sense that they're already shifting a little bit their rhetoric. Certainly the language that Zelensky uses in talking to Western leaders. He seems to be putting more of an emphasis on the word peace rather than victory. That's just an immediate impression I had just watching his most recent statements. So we would see it in these kinds of things. The, the way he uses uh, language, the, the main message that he presents in, in his speech making, he's certainly capable of doing that. He's not ideological or fixed in his message. He's always looking for a new message, a new way to move forward and, and to keep the attention of the world and, and to advance Ukraine's victory as much as he can. Can we talk a little bit more about the changes you've observed in his character and leadership style maybe as well? Mm -hmm. I was struck by this sentence from your book. The greatest changes took place in the first months of the Russian invasion. Stubborn, confident, vengeful, impolitic, brave to the point of recklessness and unsparing towards those who stood in his way, he channeled the anger and resilience of his people and expressed it with purpose to the world. Some of those words there, stubborn, venge vengeful, impolitic, could you unpack them a little bit for us? When did you see evidence of this and how did you see that? What was the context? Yeah, in politic certainly comes through in, in descriptions that I have in the book of his conversations with foreign leaders, where he was like, give me what I need. Give it to me now. I need it now. There was no room for politesse. There was no room for diplomatic courtesy. He was like, give it to me. Let me borrow it. I'll give it back. Whatever. 
you know, he was this was the tone he used in, in many of his conversations with foreign leaders. Uh, vengeful, I think the desire for revenge, especially after the atrocities uncovered in Bucha and other places, liberated towns and villages, created a, a great desire among the population for revenge. And he channeled that. He internalized it. He felt it deep in his heart and, and he expressed it. There's a quote in there later in the book where he said something like, our little enemies will die like the dew dries in the sunshine. You know, This language of we will take revenge against you, you evil bastards who have, who have invaded our country. This became very much part of his persona and his message. What was another characterization there? You, you write unsparing towards those who stood in his yeah, way, which yeah, I thought was interesting. Yes. Who, who are you talking about? Steve? Yes, I'm, I'm talking about certain representatives of the media in Ukraine political opponents who piped up and began criticizing him and began attempting a return to politics as normal at a time of war. He was very impatient with that. And, and he made very clear that he would not tolerate anyone acting like it's a good time to, to go back to criticizing the head of state at a time of war. Under martial law, power moves to the supreme commander in chief, which is Zelensky in this case. So he, he took a very firm position that yes, the state has the right to control the airwaves, to control to censor the media. And he was going to use that, as he put it, weapon of information. And he was going to point that weapon in the direction of the enemy and not at his own head, as he put it. So th there's an example for you. So yeah, that, that sentence that you read is a kind of uh, summary. But throughout the book, you see all these qualities emerge in him as the invasion progresses. Could we talk a little bit about some of your trips you took with Zelensky? So I, I believe the two big ones you talk about are to Butcher and to Hassan. What are the memories that stand out to you from those times? What surprised you maybe about these visits? What really comes through when you think back on them now? Oh, uh, there's a lot. Yeah. One anecdote that I often think about, and I've described it in, in, in my articles for Time magazine and, and also in the book, we went to Kherson by train together two days after Kherson was liberated from the Russians in November 2022. Uh, and one of our first stops there when we arrived was the central square of the city where Zelensky had come to raise the national flag above the square before the eyes of the news media and a group of a couple hundred locals who had gathered to celebrate their liberation. So we're standing there on the square and uh, waiting for the news media to arrive in buses to, to record this ceremony. And these loud explosions begin. They sound very close to where we're standing, so close that you can feel them in your rib cage. You couldn't see any anything blowing up, but it sounded like artillery was booming very near us. I got quite spooked. Everybody went silent and started looking around for, for a shell or a missile to, to come <laughs> arcing down. Uh, Zelensky was, was standing just a few steps away from me and not wearing a bulletproof vest, not wearing a helmet, as was his habit in these situations. And he didn't seem spooked at all. Um, instead, he, at that moment, saw that the soldiers who were on the square had set up a Starlink uh, internet terminal and plugged it into a diesel generator so that they had internet access there on the square. And Zelensky saw that, and he, he took out his iPhone, and he was like, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? He plugs in the Wi-Fi password, and he starts scrolling through social media, checking his messages, <laughs> checking his phone. I think about the fact that the phone has been his weapon. The way he has, in many instances of the war, experienced the war through his screen, the way that many of us have, seeing the footage of devastation appear on social media. But also, that is the way that he has communicated with the world. That is the way he has delivered his message. That is the way he has made the world see the image of the war that he wants us to see. And that's what he did in that moment when I was freaking out and wanting to jump back in the convoy and get out of there. 
he was like, let me jump on social media here for a minute. Something we I really wanted to ask you, we spoke briefly about this before we started the recording. You mentioned his dealings with world leaders, and as you just described, it was quite impolitic with some of them. Oh, yeah. Give me this, I need this. What, what, were your, what was your sense of his relationship with Boris Johnson, the former British Prime Minister? We certainly in Britain saw an incredibly, what seemed like an incredibly close friendship and mutual regard for each other's bravery and ability to perform, if, you, if we can put it like that. What was your sense of that from where you were standing with Zelensky? Yeah, that was very genuine and deep. I, I think they, they kept a kind of running list of foreign countries and foreign leaders who were problematic partners, uh, who needed some extra attention to convince them to give support. We can talk about that list later if you like. Boris Johnson was always at the top while well, he was prime minister was at the top of the, the other list, of the most loyal, the most reliable and uh, honestly admired and loved leaders. That was very clear in all of my conversations where Boris Johnson came up. I think the roots of it are from the difference in tone in the days before the invasion. The difference in tone, if you compare what Boris Johnson was saying to Zelensky, for example, at the Munich Security Conference a few days before the invasion began, Zelensky traveled there. It was his last trip before the invasion began, his last foreign trip. And he met with a bunch of foreign leaders, the, the, the leaders of all the big European countries. Kamala Harris, vice president of the United States, was the head of the U.S. delegation, met with all them. And the impression I got from everyone who was in his delegation to that summit was that Boris Johnson stood out in his commitment, his promise to be by your side. Whereas everyone else was, they were acting like this was a dead man walking, that this was a doomed figure. Whereas Johnson's from, again, secondhand, I wasn't present for that summit, but the impression that the Ukrainians got was that this guy is going to stand beside us. And indeed, on the first uh, morning of the invasion, the first person that, that Zelensky called was Boris Johnson. One of the reasons, I think, is that he had Boris Johnson's cell phone number. Uh, often world leaders, they communicate through secure telephone lines that have to be arranged in advance. It's quite a complicated process through the protocol service and all this stuff. But uh, Zelensky and, and Johnson had enough of a rapport and a relationship where Zelensky could pick up the phone and hit the button and get him on the line. Um, and that was a great comfort to him that morning. Can I ask a follow-up question there? Because I, I was about to, but you've led up to it quite nicely. This is a while ago, but one of my sources did tell me that they'd been told that during some of the most difficult periods of the war in the first six months, Johnson would be aware of this and would often communicate with Zelensky via WhatsApp, sending him memes and jokes and things like that to sort of keep his spirits up. Is that something you're aware of too? Am I on the right track there? Is my source on the right track? That's correct. Yeah. Zelensky, from his first days, <laughs> from his first days in office, found it extremely frustrating that foreign leaders declined to communicate with him via WhatsApp. Anyone who's re reported in, in Kiev for any amount of time can tell you that country is run via WhatsApp. <laughs> Everybody uses it. Everyone communicates through that channel. I'm not sure why it, it won the day versus the competitors, like whatever Signal, what have you, iMessage. But that is Zelensky in, in, in our first interview, this was in 2019, when he took office. I remember he, he went on this long rant when we met in, in the, on Bankova Street about how annoying it is that he's not allowed to just use WhatsApp, pick up the phone, text somebody, call somebody. He has to like go through all these protocol services. So yes, that is something that, that frustrates him to this day, that he has to go through all these formal channels. He'd rather not do that. My next task, I think, will be to try and find out what were the jokes and what were the memes that Boris Johnson was sending. <laughs> we'll have to ask Boris Johnson. He was a former columnist yeah. at The Telegraph. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Moving away slightly, but there is a connection between the two, I think. Another really interesting thing you say in your book is that he's often compared with these great political figures, which we've referred to. But actually, the figures he, he admires most are artists or essayists who critiqued fascism or the evils of a dictatorship and of course you know we were referring to Boris Johnson here and I'm not really comparing Boris Johnson to the greats like Charlie Chaplin or George Orwell but there is a sense that he's a writer he's a journalist he sees the world I think in that slightly more artistic sense just wonder if we can unpack that a little bit more Zelensky the thinker the artist the creative and the role that that has in how he has fought this war and how he sees the world perhaps yeah, that's right. That, that um, impression came from one of my conversations with him uh, during the invasion when I asked him what he thought about these comparisons to Churchill. And generally, he saw himself fitting into the canon of historical war- the wartime leaders and so on, the pantheon. Thank you. And he turned up his nose at the comparison to Churchill. It seemed that he didn't appreciate Churchill's history of s- support for British imperialism. Because Zelensky sees the war in Ukraine fundamentally as an anti-imperialist war. And then in response to my question, he brought up other figures from Churchill's era, namely George Orwell, one of Zelensky's favorite authors, and Charlie Chaplin, who lampooned Hitler in the middle of the Holocaust, famously. And I, I don't remember the quote precisely. It's in the book. But he said something like, there were these artists in history who fought against evil and their influence was often stronger than artillery. And that made it clear to me that this is the canon he wants to join. The artist who uses words, uses the power of communication to fight against evil. He doesn't see himself falling into the canon of military commanders moving tank formations around on a map. He sees himself as a communicator. I think that's a very deep and fascinating insight. So in a sense, he's a reluctant wartime leader. I suppose my next question has to be then, let's say the war does end in a favourable way for Zelensky. What would a peacetime Zelensky look like? Do you think it's even conceivable? Or do you think actually that in a way Zelensky is defined as now Ukraine's wartime leader and it would really be impossible for him to assume a different identity? Maybe the country itself would, would want change. I don't think it's impossible by any means. No, at the end of the book, I, I do end on a, on a note of concern. What will Ukraine look like after 
what I deeply hope will be its victory in this war, what kind of Ukraine will that be? How will it transition back to a functioning democracy? Uh, under martial law, democracy is put on hold. And that's very clear. So Z Zelensky is fully within his rights to rule by decree because those are the powers the president has in wartime. If you take him at his word, he promises once martial law is lifted, once victory is achieved, we will go back in Ukraine to democracy as normal. Parliament will continue to function. The media can, can, can resume wholeheartedly criticizing the president and so on and so on. My concern is rooted more in historical precedent. That kind of absolute power is addictive and it's often very hard for leaders to part with it voluntarily. That's usually, historically speaking, a pretty fraught transition. And, you know, I, I hope Zelensky keeps his word. Uh, and there are some things beyond his words, his actions, that give me hope. I describe them in, in the book. One is this interesting episode where a few months into the invasion, it was in the summer of 2022, the postmaster general of, of Ukraine wanted to release a postage stamp of Zelensky's face. And the, the postmaster general showed me the mock-up that they had prepared. It looked very grandiose, Zelensky surrounded by warplanes and so on. And he took this image to Zelensky's office, showed it to him, and Zelensky's response is quite heartening to me. <laughs> he said, oh, come on. Now, now is not the time to start a cult of personality. I think a, a different leader who was addicted to power would have said, yes, I like that. <laughs> you know, let's go with that. But Zelensky was like, get out of here with that. No, 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 no. We're not doing that right now. I mean, and another thing I, I wanted to point, not to overstate by any means my Roman history here, but Zelensky and his team, they had enough respect for the, the work of independent journalists to let me hang around and, and write this book. They knew that I don't work for them. I'm not a patsy. My articles have been critical of them over the years, and they still allowed me to do that. That shows a certain commitment and a respect for the free press that I think is also very heartening and encouraging when you think about what Ukraine will look like uh, after the war. Just one more question on this theme of, of the future of Ukraine and Zelensky's relationship with that. Of course, something that he's adopted in the past year or so, particularly publicly, is his war against corruption. And I wanted to ask you how heartfelt you think that war against corruption is versus how it's an example of realpolitik that he realises that he has to fight it now because it's an impediment to him how he fights this war and the support that he receives from Western countries. Is it a heartfelt thing in terms of him changing the future of, of the country and fighting that kind of oligarchic shadow? Or is it something a little bit more calculated than that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I talked uh, in some depth about this additional challenge, this additional war that he has to fight at the same time, the war against corruption. I think one thing that came through is, is his single-minded focus on winning the war on the battlefield shapes his the level of his commitment to the war against corruption. One, one thing that, that he expressed to me was that we need to prioritize our unity and our military advances. And if we begin hunting down people for corruption, mismanagement, scandals in defense procurement in terms of buying eggs at the right price for the military or buying winter coats for the right price, feel that these were somewhat petty matters when compared to the greater mission that he was on to attain victory for Ukraine. But the problem there is, and he was very, very sensitive to this, he's under enormous pressure from his allies in the West, in particular the United States, to combat corruption. I understand this. There's a lot of pressure on Capitol Hill in Washington to make sure that there's accountability for all the, the, the money and support, the financial aid coming to Ukraine. 
Uh, the Americans want to make sure that the institutions in Ukraine are healthy enough to protect this uh, the money coming from the United States. So he's under enormous pressure to, to uh, deal with corruption even while fighting the war. He does express a level of frustration in saying, you know, it's very difficult to fight both wars at the same time because the war against corruption, one thing it could lead to is a kind of gutting of the leadership. So as you saw with Defense Minister Resnikov, he was moved from his post in relation to a corruption scandal. No one I talked to in Kiev said he was corrupt. Everybody said that he had failed to pay attention to certain scandals related to purchases of eggs and purchases of winter coats and so on in his ministry. And it was frustrating to Zelensky to think that he lost a minister of defense, a very important figure in his circle, because of these scandals. He did give Reznikov multiple opportunities to deal with this problem internally but without removing him. And he, Zelensky was criticized for that. We may be getting into the weeds of, of, of the kind of the corruption war here too much. I'm, I'm sorry if we are, but I have a, a great deal of sympathy for his position that a kind of the, a war against corruption and what it would require of, of the Ukrainian leadership would be very destabilizing for the state. You would have to prosecute a lot of people. You have to fire a lot of people, even people who are not themselves corrupt, but who were part of a ministry leading an agency that had some problems with corruption. And he thinks that would be in some ways detrimental to the war effort. Simon, you spent a year with him, talked to him countless times. What was your most difficult conversation? I, I, I spent a year following him around and, and spending time with his team. In total, I've had six interviews with him. So it's not like I, I was brushing my teeth next to the guy in the morning. It was, it was more that I was in the presidential compound observing life there. I didn't see the president every day by any means. So just want to be clear about that. I don't want to overstate sure. my, my access here. The most difficult conversation, I, I'd say, was before the invasion. I interviewed him in November of 2019. It was hard to see him at that time. What he was doing was, on the one hand, preparing for his negotiations with Vladimir Putin, his first in-person peace talks with Putin, which would not go well, and at the same time dealing with uh, Donald Trump and the whole scandal that led to Donald Trump's first impeachment. Donald Trump's efforts to essentially extort political favors from Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership. So I really felt for him. He was very disillusioned. He was confronting all the ugliness of political and partisan warfare for the first time. He was very dejected. And one thing he said, and I described this meeting in the book, is I don't trust anyone at all. Everyone just has their interests. There are no alliances. And that cynicism was difficult to see only after six months in office, the happy-go-lucky, optimistic, naive charmer had been poisoned with this kind of political cynicism. That was difficult to observe. So I think of that as a, a difficult conversation. And, and I know that the pressures he's faced during the invasion are much more dramatic and, and consequential. But at, at the time, I think he was really beaten down and it was, it was tough to see him at, at that time. I've asked that question so I can flip it round. What was the sort of maybe the most inspiring or the, the, the best moment you, you had with him over the last year? The best moment. The final chapter of the book describes the trip that we took to Kherson after its liberation. That's just by chance that this was a kind of upswing. Ukraine at that time had gone from victory to victory. They had liberated the region of Kharkov, then soon after winning the Battle of Kiev, then they liberated Kherson. So he was riding high. There was a great deal of optimism around him and around his team and everyone who works with him. And we had a very interesting conversation on the train about how he sees the fundamental goals of this war to free Ukraine from the final bonds of empire. 
that were left over after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And to see the way that he thinks about extricating and ripping out all the Russianness left in him from his upbringing in the Soviet Union, the, all the nostalgia, how he, how he thinks about removing all these things from, from himself and finally breaking the bonds of Russian oppression that he, for most of his life, did not recognize as oppression. But now he sees that is what it is, and, and his mission fundamentally, and this is what we talked about, is to break those bonds. Another trip that will be known to listeners, because we talked about it on the podcast at length, was his fairly recent trip to the United States, which by many accounts, including yours, did not go well. I wanted to ask you about your Time magazine cover story, which caused a bit of controversy, I think it's fair to say at the time, oh, yeah. looking at how that trip went which was not particularly well received from either the Democrats or the Republicans, and indeed, I think, critiquing some of the ways that Zelensky and his team had approached the United States. It seemed to, I think we said at the time, articulate the anxiety of the moment when you published that piece a few months ago. And indeed, at a particularly dark moment, the failure of the counteroffensive, as articulated by some, the sort of pessimism of the moment. Did you expect the backlash? And how do you feel now, a few months on from its publication, about its impact and your conclusions in it? Well, I, I want to say my goal as a journalist, I'm not an analyst. I'm not a prognosticator. I don't pretend to give any advice or to pass judgment. I describe what I see, what I hear from the figures involved in the events I describe. So uh, I by no means was trying to give some assessment or analysis or opinion of President Zelensky or the war or anything like that. I followed him from Washington to Kiev. I spent a couple of weeks in Kiev talking to him and, and to his advisors. And what I described is, yes, a very gloomy situation. Uh, Zelensky hadn't changed. Zelensky was still as determined as ever to achieve victory, but the context and the circumstances of the war had grown much more difficult. As General Valery Zaluzhny declared only a couple of days, I think, after my article was published, the, the counteroffensive had ended in something like a stalemate. So General Zaluzhny declared that in, in an interview with The Economist, but of course, President Zelensky and his team were hearing that from Zaluzhny much earlier. So the, the doom and gloom that I was hearing from them, I think now with hindsight, came from the fact that they were receiving this news from the front, and it was very alarming to them. So I, in that article, was, was trying to get across how they're feeling, how they're experiencing the war. I always try to do that. And this book, I want to be clear, it's, it's not an analysis. It's a chronicle of what happened and how we got here, why we got here. It doesn't pretend to give advice to the president or anything like that. So I was surprised by the backlash. People do tend to blame the messenger. And I understand that. I respect that. I think the article diverged to a large extent from the picture of the war that Ukrainians were getting from the state-controlled television channels in Ukraine. So they weren't getting such a gloomy picture because that's not the picture that uh, the Ukrainian authorities wanted their people to see. But I couldn't whitewash or minimize the problems that uh, Ukraine was facing, that the president was facing. And I, I presented them honestly, not based on my opinion, but based on my conversations with the individuals directly involved in dealing with these problems. And you mentioned Zeluzhny there. There's a lot of speculation that in the coming weeks and months, there might be a permanent fracturing in the sense of either a resignation or a sacking by Zelensky of Zeluzhny. wonder if you've heard any more about that. And perhaps you can just talk a little bit more about their relationship and the, the ways in which they've agreed and disagreed with each other, because it does seem quite fundamental now. And there is going to have to be, if not 
a change, then there's going to have to be, I think, some kind of reconciliation on matters of policy and approach, because it does seem that there has been quite a pronounced deviation in recent months. Yeah. So I'd say there are two relationships that are really at the center of the book. One is the relationship between the president and the first lady. And the second one is the relationship between the president and his top military commander, General Zaluzhny. So I, I follow the evolution of that relationship from the point when they first met in the early days of, of the Zelensky administration in 2019, all the way through the first year of the invasion. And so it's a complicated evolution. It's a complicated relationship. And you're right. But in the book, you see how they went from a place of mutual admiration and respect uh, and why they began to, to disagree and, and then to clash behind the scenes. That tension from all of my sources remains. I think there, there's a deep understanding within Zelensky's team that it would be extremely destabilizing and, and, and quite dangerous to remove the military commander in the middle of a war. So they recognize the gravity of such a decision. But you're right, since I finished the book, we have begun to see the disagreements between the two men spill into the open. I think most prominently around General Zaluzhny's declaration of, of what appears to be a stalemate along the front lines and President Zelensky's expression of concern that the general would say something like that w- without harmonizing the message with the message of the president. I'm being diplomatic here. <laughs> so we're seeing these things bubble up. I think in many ways, very important factor in the way the war goes in the coming months and maybe longer, will depend on the relationship between these two men. Uh, And this is one of the reasons that I I thought it was so important to chronicle that relationship and and to explain what went wrong there. And just one final question from me before I hand back to David. You mentioned the other key relationship in the book with his wife. How integral has that relationship been in this war? And what other lights can you shine on her, given the amazingly important role that she has had, at least in the public eye as well, in terms of visiting other countries, including Britain, on the outcomes of where we are so far? Yeah, her transformation uh, over the course of the book is almost as dramatic, if not more so, than Zelensky's, in the way that she has been forced, often against her will, to take on new roles, new personas, new professions, as her husband's career changes and and progresses. Now, I think she's one of the most effective representatives, diplomats that Ukraine has. I describe her first visit to Washington, where she was received with enormous admiration and respect and and was very effective in uh, winning hearts and minds on Capitol Hill. And I also, in the article that we just talked about more recently, that came out in October after the book was finished, I I describe how they gave a speech together in Washington at the end of September. And it seemed to me that actually the First Lady was the, the more forceful and, and more inspiring figure there on the stage when they were juxtaposed together. Zelensky was having a bad day, in fairness, but she really shined. And it's been interesting to observe. I also say that in the book, she, I think, helped me a lot in understanding him, in correcting some of his recollections about the past. He is in some ways a kind of myth maker, a storyteller, and sometimes he gets the facts wrong. And and she was not shy during our interviews and saying, no, 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 that's not quite how it went. Here's the real story. So I'm very grateful to her for that and for spending so much time talking to me for the book. She really gives us a perspective and a depth of understanding of the central figure in the book, President Zelensky, that would have been impossible to, to describe and to reach without her contribution. 
Simon, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything we haven't spoken about or any points you think have been unsaid so far? Anything you really wish we'd asked you? No, I don't think so. I just want to thank you again for all your commitment to covering the war with the attention, the commitment, and the intensity that you have. I was always a keen listener of your podcasts uh, in Kiev. I would listen to them over breakfast with a real inside scoop of what was going on on the battlefield. So thank you so much for all the work you've done these last two years. It's been incredible. You say you were a keen listener. How, how can we make that a, a present <laughs> verb again? I, I still am. I still am. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Phew, phew, phew. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so time. much. So just for our listeners, The Showman, the inside story of the invasion that shook the world and made a leader of Volodymyr Zelensky by Simon Schuster is available in all good bookshops. Simon Schuster, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 